I really liked your article, kind of how you differentiate um, the thinking behind horizontal versus vertical and how most of the time people, are, it seems, are just focusing on the vertical side of things. Right. And and how you really talked about where the architect's value in, at least right now, is in firms as they exist today is very much focused on the horizontal. Um, so those things are not in alignment at all, right? No, they're not. And they, it presents uh, an interesting challenge moving forward, especially when we talk about like regulation, because I feel a big point early on in the article is to distinguish that like, and architects know this, that this is why they, this is why the AI is always held in this position of like trying to be the lot, like uh, members of the AI really see it as like it's lobbyist yeah, uh, to try to protect and preserve the name, right? And and all that comes along with it, especially pretty much what they're trying to protect is the lo- the ability to own the risk, yeah. the little risk that's been <laughs> preserved. So that part's really interesting because what happens in a world and like there, uh, over the weekend, I was I came across some other interesting articles. Uh, um, there's the Monica Ponce de Leon piece where she talks about reform, uh, the dean of, of Princeton, where she talks about reform for um, licensure. Yeah. And it was like, well, if that does hold true, right, let's say like, OK, well, I mean, re- reform aside, but if we, we remove completely um, any kind of protections from a regulation perspective, there is really nothing holding back a purely fully integrated business um, at that point. I mean, yeah. a developer that is just really interested in a specific typology of project can hire architects internally and never really rely on a service anymore, just focus on product. Could that be good for the profession? Maybe. But then really, if you go back up to like this, the journey of an architect, it then completely questions the education. Hi there, I'm Evan Troxell. Welcome to my podcast about how technology is changing the architectural profession. Welcome back to the Troxel podcast. My name is Evan Troxel. The conversation that you're about to hear was a fantastic one with George Valdez of Monograph. I first met George when he was at Iris VR, and he's also worked mainly in tech focused on the architectural profession at other companies, including Paperspace, WeWork. And of course, now Monograph, uh, where he is responsible for growth. He's always been focused on the built environment and in emerging technologies, as you'll hear in this episode. Uh, That would include augmented reality, virtual reality, machine learning, things like that. He's also strongly interested in real estate, architecture, and construction technology. He has a Master's of Architecture from Columbia University Graduate School of Architecture, Planning, and Preservation and a Bachelor's of Landscape Architecture from Florida International University. I really enjoyed this conversation. Like I started off saying, I feel like uh, George and I have so many interesting topics that we cover in this episode that it's all over the place, as these episodes definitely are turning out to be, which I really enjoy having those kinds of conversations, and I hope you do too. So without further ado, please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with George Valdez. George Valdez, welcome to the show. It's great to have you and talk to you once again. Yeah, great to be. I feel like we've connected many times over the years in v- various places. You, you've kind of jumped all over the place, and and you know it's very much like the 
the bleeding edge of architecture, it seems. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think uh, it's the bleeding edge is a great way to put it. It's it's actually why it's I couldn't find a home in architecture probably because I'm so interested in in the bleeding edge. Like I've always stayed at the periphery. That's that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it definitely seems like you've made that choice early since early on. So tell me, like, what what was that process like for you? I mean, you went, you were in school, you weren't, you went to landscape architecture, you got a master's in architecture and then like, and then what? Yeah, I actually entered architecture almost on a lark. Basically, I was really interested in computer animation. I think there's actually quite a people, quite a number of people in my generation really saw Jurassic Park uh, as like this uh, pivotal turning point in their lives where they just became really interested in things to do with that. Um uh, yeah, just because I have a couple of friends that share a similar story. But Jurassic Park ended up me wanting to become a computer animator. So I actually had experience with like Rhino and some other like really, I mean, like point by point to line to line, to, you know, building up modeling software yeah. uh, when I was in school. And uh, it, it came out that, I mean, I was talking to my uncle one day and I had no clue what I wanted to do. And uh, he was like, well, why don't you become an architect? They get paid pretty well. Um, and it's kind of like an art and a science. And it kind of is Charles Wilthwards. And I was like, huh, that's interesting. And so at that point, I didn't really have any aspirations about like going out of state or anything. So I applied to FIU, was able to get in and, and uh, kind of started in, on the course to be an architect. At the end of the second year, you have to reapply because it's a state school. They have to let in other people from uh, different uh, community college program center. So uh, I reapplied, but I, I phoned in my portfolio mm-hmm. and it was so shitty. It was so bad. <laughs> and I got denied from the architecture. Program. That was like probably the, the first uh, real kind of point of failure for me uh, rejection. in general. Yeah. Yeah. The, the real like real rejection because I loved what I was doing and to, think that like wow what am i going to do and mm. fortunately there were uh, new professors that entered the the landscape program uh roberto rivera being one of them who basically kind of took me aside and there and he was kind of like well you know like you know this landscape program is pretty different from any you know what you what you might think of it from the onset why don't you give it a shot and you know at the, it's still a professional degree uh, mm-hmm. which was really interesting it's a four-year professional degree mm. And, you know, it's not that different. There's a lot of really interesting things you could do here. So I took him up on it. And in this first studio, I was just kind of like, wow, yeah, this is really interesting. Uh, I had a professor, uh, Gianno Feli, who who did a great job of explaining how, like, landscape architecture is is like architecture. It's just you're dealing with a different material Mm -hmm. that also happens to change over time Mm -hmm. and potentially could die. Like, there's this kind of, like, other poetic aspect to landscape architecture, which was so fascinating it's a very living element right so very different than architecture yeah it's living but then you have really interesting practitioners like west eight in the netherlands that were doing just like amazing hardscape softscape type of environments yeah and that really kind of set me on this journey of like thinking differently about what space could mean and at the same time i was still sort of plugged into like technology and my undergrad wasn't at that time, it wasn't teaching like a lot of interesting tools in the sense that like a lot of it was self-taught. Yeah. And so keeping up with my own kind of interest in learning tools that I find online, uh, I got really interested in kind of learning more about what was out there. And what was out there was uh, work that was being done at universities like Columbia, mm. where 
I just, after a certain point, I think it was in my third year, I was basically reading any course material I could find at Columbia's website that they had publicly available. I would print out all of the, uh, all of the project, all of the class descriptions and just like start reading it. I mean, after that second year, I basically, as a sort of, uh, you know, challenge to myself because I, because of that failure point of not getting into the architecture, uh, rest of the architecture program, I, I, I downloaded a bunch of Wikipedia entries that had to do with architecture uh, in order to just sort of like prove to myself like, okay, no, I, I can do this. I can learn this. And mm. all that to say that like, I still had architecture on my mind Yeah, and I took advantage of those two extra, those two other years to basically just do architecture. Like, I mean, there was no product that I did that didn't have a hard, hard quote, quote unquote, hardscape component. I mean, there were basically buildings that just emerged from the ground. Yeah. And along that, along the way, I was just looking at whatever was being taught at Columbia as my guiding principle. So I taught myself Maya. I was trying to do like, uh, uh, well, my, my best friend that I, that I met at FIU, uh, Adrian Von der Osten, who him and I have basically started businesses together uh, since then. We basically partnered up on almost every single project and we made it into this like try to do architecture. And then by the time Columbia came around, uh, when I, I applied to different uh, uh, schools and got accepted to Columbia, I really thought I was going to be like, oh, I'm going to be an architect. I'm going to take Stephen Hall. You know, I'm going to take all these like really well-known professors and I'm going to like put buildings out in the world. What What was interesting about Columbia at the time, I don't know how it is at this point, but this is like around 2009. It was under Mark Wigley. It was like you had so much variety of choice that it was a self-sorting machine. Basically, whoever you want, whoever you truly were, the school would sort you out. And what happened was I ended up realizing that I cared less and less about how things came together, mm -hmm. right? Stephen Hall or some of the uh, more, maybe more like technical professors. And I cared more about like why the systems were even the way they were. Like why does a prompt have to be a building? And I ended up picking studio professors that were more on that edge, like the bleeding edge part, like you were saying before. And, you know, at, at that point, I mean, there were interesting professors like, uh, I mean, David Benjamin is still there. And he, his studio for me was one of these kind of like lighthouse moments where I fully accepted that I wanted to do much more fringe type of work. Mm. Um, his studio specifically had to do with synthetic biology and what it would mean to program bacteria to produce materials. And then after that, it was just kind of like, okay, well, w the rest of the semester was just think semesters were thinking about how do I get out of this? <laughs> <laughs> it, it also happened to be uh, at, the at the same time I entered, Evan Sharp, who ended up founding Pinterest, uh, we overlapped over a year. And I heard rumblings that he left, and then I heard things about him to Facebook, and I was like, whoa, that's, that's crazy. Like, someone's just leaving grad school to go work at Facebook. That's weird. That's wild. And then I heard that he left Facebook and started this app, and finally, like, through the grapevine, uh, we all got in, like, just people from the school got invited as part of that first initial cohort of people to, to use the platform. And um, when I saw Pinterest, it was like, okay, this is – this is maybe where I could see myself in the future. Interesting. Not at Pinterest, but just in yeah, technology. Right. Yeah.
but yeah, after, after that, after grad school, I got hired by the university um, to run its accreditation program for the 2013 submission, working under David Benjamin. And um, that's where I kind of dive deeply into like, okay, let's let's unpack NCARB, let's unpack NAB, let's dive more into the story behind this. And I came across a really interesting book by Dana Cuff called uh, The Story of Practice, Architecture, The Story of Practice. And it was written in the 1970s and nothing changed. I mean, when I read that book, I felt like, this is now. <laughs> this is now. Like she did such an amazing breakdown of break, uh, like the sociology uh, behind things, just like a client meeting. She would sit in client meetings and diagram how they, how the clients were talking to the architects and how they were responding. And it just seeing reading that book really made it very clear that like, okay, there's something here that needs to change. I don't know what it is yet, but maybe my home is not here yet. Let me go do something else and. Um, that's when I started a, a startup with my, my friend, uh, Adrian, uh, called Feather and Mint, which was like trying to bring retail into Airbnb homes. Uh, and we learned a lot through that. I, I, I spent a month or so on his couch learning, uh, the, the kind of ins and outs of, of that. It was a brutal time, but, uh, yeah, that kind of started that kind of journey outside of that. Interesting. And so then where does, I think you were, the first time we met, you were at Iris VR. Yeah. By the time I hit, by the time I went to Iris, um, I was actually, so Feather Mint uh, failed. Uh, we just couldn't find, I mean, we had no money to begin with and we were now at a point where we were grasping at straws yeah. and I applied to work at a startup called Augmate, which was three guys working out of a coffee shop in, uh, in Manhattan even after I joined, we were still working there for six months. But the the premise was basically Google Glass had just come out. Wearables were pretty hot. And the idea was like, could you bring Google Glass to logistics and warehousing and other kind of scenarios where deskless workers are really, um, you know, prominent and where you could probably bring better safety, better efficiency to that type of work mm. and that was a really amazing experience we were able to raise funding around 2.8 million from ups siemens venture group um uh simon property group all these kind of interesting strategic vcs and yeah i mean i, I ended up like going to an animal farm like looking at how we could apply google glass to help uh, cattle ranchers identify whether a cow was sick or not wow pig farm which was also its own kind of like crazy experience. And uh, yeah, it was it, it, at that point, it was one of those things where like the it's you're so on the bleeding edge that like there's no market for it or like the market really hasn't caught up yet. Right. To be yeah. able to like, actually make that into a successful thing. And there were all sorts of, of other issues that just made it made sense for for me to go. And by that time, I had met Shane, uh, the CEO and co-founder of Iris VR. And I remember at a WeWork, he showed me a demo of, of Iris and I was just sort of blown away. It was like one click to VR. This is huge. And yeah. And then I, I kind of pitched myself to, to him to, and I think at that time he was looking for somebody to help with business development and product. And I, I joined, I think I forgot what year it was, 20, 2014, 2015. 
so yeah, that's when that's when you and I met. That sounds about right. Yeah, and then since then you've gone to Paperspace, and is there somebody be- between Paperspace and and Monograph? Yeah, uh, there was a moment where I was kind of trying to figure out oh, we what work. I was going. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, we work was was uh, but even between like around the same time as Paperspace, I was also trying to fill in experience on more in the sales and marketing side by consulting in it. Yeah. And so I was doing that at the same time as I was uh, working with paper space, which I mean, fortunately I've been able to find and and be connected to a lot of entrepreneurs who come from architecture and paper space is a great example of like two founders that Mm. I think they've met before, but they're from the university of Michigan studied architecture and they were first trying to solve uh, what was it? Uh, uh, rendering, like just like rendering workflows and just like VMs for for uh, Revit, right? And then they realized it was a bigger opportunity here with machine learning and 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 uh, GPUs, and so I think they're 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 still doing amazing uh, work on that front. But um, around that time, I met, I uh, connected again with Dave Fano. Mm-hmm. We we met at a summer camp because my my wife works at WeWork. She was working there at the time still, and. Uh, he kind of had it's like, hey, I've been thinking about you because he knew about the work I was doing at Iris. It's like, hey, I, I'd like for you to we should talk about joining WeWork to do um, sales centers mm. where we can bring in VR and try to basically help pre, pre-sell locations before they're open. Because uh, sometimes when you go to a new market or you go even in the same city, people don't really intuit what a WeWork is going to look and feel like. So right. we could maybe use for that. And that was a really amazing ride uh, working at WeWork, doing, working on the kind of projects I got to work on. Yeah, I got to travel the world uh, pretty much uh, just trying to find really – it was wild because I was put in a position where it was, it was pretty much like, hey, we want to open up uh, these showrooms in new markets. Go. Yeah. <laughs> new markets. <laughs> go. <laughs> and I was like, okay, great. So Wow. Better plan that out. <laughs> but it's it was it was amazing because the the people there and I think anybody anytime you come across anybody that talks about WeWork it's like the people is what they underscore right and the the kind of infrastructure of support that you had internally mm-hmm. um, my boss there uh, Miriam Mark I could never say uh, en- enough good things about her she just kind of like she let me go- she gave me rope right yeah, like she yeah. saw that I was kind of going and she it's like. I know, we could we could talk about like management and stuff like that at some point, but um, yeah, it was it was a really amazing experience. And like I said, both my wife and I worked there. So uh, after you know, sometime in last year, I'd already met the Monograph team and was advising them, and things lined up really well where they had just received funding, and I joined the team to right. to work on growth there. So yeah, man, you you're like living on the fringe of architecture. Not so much landscape architecture, maybe anymore, but uh, it sounds yeah. like yeah, fringe of architecture. And now, like specifically, how how to get work done, or how to plan and strategize. And it seems to me like a lot of the work that you're doing around growth at Monograph and the writing that you've been doing online, and even going, you know, talking through that that section of history that you had at Columbia, running the accreditation and unpacking NAB and NCARB. It seems like a lot of this stuff is kind of coming full circle, right? Because it, it seems like that's when you really started to understand how interwoven all this stuff is, accreditation, education, the profession, how to run a business, 
and then all of these other kind of emerging technologies that are potentially expanding the business or taking it in different directions. So I'm wondering, like, it, do you really feel like that's kind of where all that started? And and now where do you, it seems like there's been a lot of threads recently on Twitter specifically and with yeah. the writing that you're doing, you know, the, and that we're reading that people are publishing um, that are starting to really think about the value chain, the vertical, the horizontal, all of these different things. So is that kind of where it all started? I, I mean, I can even pinpoint it to like a couple points where like a, a GSAP Columbia, the one of the professor, well, the professor at the time for professional practice is, uh, I think he's still teaching it, um, uh, Paul Siegel. And his class was was amazing because, I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen the book, but it's like the book that's like <laughs> since, this, since I think the 80s or something, it's like a little red book that talks it's just like professional practice. Yep. And uh, he wrote it. And, and so what was fascinating about I his class. I had that class, book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. In my course. And what was fascinating about his class is that he's just like, and I love him. He's just like a straight shooter, but he was he was probably the most radical mm. professor in the sense that he kept on wondering why why did the you know even the architects that he's teaching there right or the the students that he's teaching he kept on putting the question of like why are we doing it this way why is this mm. being done this way like when people were asking in the class I think about like development right he's like yeah like back, he's like back in my day like we would like architects would be developers like yeah. that was yeah. very commonplace and mm. now for some reason that's not the case anymore a version of risk yeah <laughs> yeah well and, and i mean there's a lot of points that's there where i it. think yeah. that's part of it for sure but it kind of like his kind of questioning really sort of as an earworm in my head about like yeah like there's this like why does it need to be this way and one thing of benefit about going to tech is that, yeah, it has this all its intended attendant problems in some yeah. regards about the naivety that it brings to some problem issues. But the other part is that it's pretty refreshing. Yeah. It's like you're in an environment where it's always like anything is possible. And so I, I would say that's where it definitely kind of started. And, and the evolution so far has been me kind of recircling different aspects of practice through different lenses, whether it's iris be more about representation and you know the the problem of like why do we have why do we charge clients for us to better present a project to them it's mm -hmm. so like i don't pay anybody in my life to then tell me what it is they're going to give me like right it's it's like a weird thing where representation has its own problems and then with paper space it was about just like workflows in the cloud like how firms and actually sort of preempting the whole covid and, and remote work situation, it's like uh, one of the biggest expenses in firms is like hardware. But, you know, the cloud is going to make it and ha is making it such where you can run incredibly intensive operations out there and lower the cost of of operating a business. So there's this like line of sight where we where it's like about how do you create what I at one point was trying to call like the lean firm, which is just being able to run a more efficient practice um, with better tools that yeah, are available right. out there. Modern tools, yeah. It's interesting because there's there's so much to unpack there. Right? There there's and, and I guess, you know, one thing that I I probably already said it on this show. I've said it in presentations. There's two things architects hate, the way things are and change. And we are always kind of stuck in the middle. We and and it's not just limited to architects. Like this could you could probably yeah, apply anyway. that statement to anybody. But but it's yeah. it's more funny it, when you say it in the presence of a bunch of architects. <laughs> so, uh, you know, they don't, 
they they're never happy with with how things are, but they also don't want to step outside of that comfort zone or take that next step. And you do have this kind of unending waterfall of new technology and possibility, right? Of uh, with that that na- naivety brings to the conversation, which is kind of refreshing, right? Like you're a new father, right? So you haven't hit this this stage in in childhood development that the only question that gets asked is why, <laughs> mm, <laughs> but that's going to happen yeah. to you. Right. And that's what you were kind of referring to when you're talking about that pro practice course is why do we do it this way? I mean, you're going to get that from, from your daughter and it's going to be like, because of this. And then she's going to say why, and then you're going to say, well, that's because of this. And well, why? Right. And, and you could never stop asking why until you kind of put the hammer down and say, because that's the way it is. Right. And, and, but, but that final answer is what we hear all the time in architecture because that's how we've always done it. Yeah. And that to me, and, and you hear that all the time, that's the most dangerous statement that, that you could hear in a firm, but it's constant. It's constantly the way it is because we're driven and incentivized by the, the current state, which is, mm. you know, some gross profit number on a project or some schedule or some deadline or some client or whatever it is. And you don't often have the the levity to think outside of, or you don't have the incentive to even to think outside and to think beyond and or to think sideways from where you are now. Yeah, and I, I mean, I completely agree. It's like it's also found in other industries for sure, uh, which which is kind of interesting when you parallel it with other industries like like medicine or like law firms, right? Because these are kind of the professional practices that people compare things to. Mm-hmm. Where like one of my other experiences while I was at paper space and consulting was like even doing things like helping a friend uh, implement like a legal software into his practice. And what was more interesting was that modern software was having a huge impact on his firm for sure with the new implementation of that tool. But it also uh, underscored like generationally, he was just like, it it was sort of different, right? Like, uh, I'd say that he's part of like a, you know, 30, 35 uh, year cohort of, you know, practicing his own law firm, created his own law firm, right? Entrepreneurial and and immediately questioned, how can we do this to be more efficient? Yeah. I think in architecture, it's interesting insofar as like you have the normal, like, what is it like the supply chain, let's say, of like new recruits that enter firms. Yeah. And. You have the two routes. One is where, like, you aspire to start your own thing yep. at some point. Yeah. Um, and the other one is, like, you try to work up the ladder of a firm. In both routes, they're not really questioning how to run things more effectively. Like, technology is always in the service of design, not necessarily operations. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, in the law firm, technology is only in service of, of, of operations. So they kind of already have that sort of mindset from the beginning interesting yeah so i don't know i think there's like interesting parallels when you look at other industries but also um this question of why firms or rather people in firms um are resistant to change in some way i want to say you can trace it back to like the aia code of ethics of like all the way back to like 1919 and in some ways it's even closer it's like Things that happened in the seventies when it came to like uh, when it came to like uh, like legal cases where basically it made it so the architects could get sued. There's just like this thread yeah. of things that happened to the industry, cause and effect. Yeah, yeah, that cause and effect to create a culture in which like to underscore the point on like why how business is so so little of a focus mm-hmm. in the industry. 
marketing, right? And I think this has been, I don't know if it was talked in your podcast before, but I mean, I know it's like been brought up recently in some of the threads we've talked about, but like marketing wasn't, wasn't really okayed. Yeah, that that was a Twitter thread. Yeah, we t- and I was blown away by by your code of ethics citation on that. Yeah, in the nineteen nineteen code of ethics, if you look it up, it says somewhere that like marketing is a ungentlemanly, you know, not not timely, but like right. ungentleman uh, behavior, right? Wow. And so what happened? You had a bunch of architects that like saw that, and yeah, they couldn't they couldn't really publish uh, adverts in newspapers, but they figured out other ways to market. Mm. And what you have since then basically is a sort of tried and true model for how architects should do things. Yeah. And even after the 19, the, I think in the 1980s, they basically said it was okay to start marketing or something like that. But like you have a whole generation of people that went to school and like really were told like, you know, this is not what you should do. And so leadership in firms. It just gets passed down. It's like storytelling. Yeah, Totally. And then we believe it. Everybody believes it, and they don't question why. Why do we do it like this? Uh, because again, they're kind of got blinders on and nose to the grindstone, and they don't they don't think back to how did it get this way, and is this yeah. the is this the path we we choose to be on, or is it right? Is it fate? Is it just fate? Is this something that's been prescribed by the elders, and and we just don't even question it? I mean, I think that there's some really interesting stuff there. And so what what you're saying is like this is prolific throughout the entire profession in so many ways that we don't even consider, let alone the tools that we use to get the job done, right? It's way beyond that. Yeah. And, and I mean, this also just goes to like, you know, partly it has to do with culture, partly it has to do with education. And then the other side of it too, is just like, you know, there, there are forces that are external to the industry that are going to force the hand of the industry yeah it's going to force the industry and if the industry continues to rely on the same assumptions that it's operating on currently and for the past number of years you know the slightest change in regulation will completely upend upend that upend all those assumptions from a strategy perspective there's like what are your your uh, most obvious risks and the 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 most obvious one is a risk of losing, let's say, the regulatory support afforded by licensure. Funny story from my past is um, studying for AREs, right? Studying to get my license in California and overhearing a conversation by somebody who sat on the NCARB board, and it doesn't matter who, um, and and this could have just been their personal opinion or, or whatever. I, I'm sure it's not like a widely shared opinion, but but maybe it is, and that would be kind of scary, but is that when you say it, the the smallest regulatory change could upend the entire profession, all the business models that we currently operate under, it would, would be that because it was basically stated that, you know, the question is if, if a doctor or a lawyer or anybody else who is a professional didn't have to use an architect, would they? And the answer was obviously no. <laughs> it's red tape to them. They're not hiring you to get drawings. They're hiring you. They're hiring someone to get a building, whatever that building is, whether they think it's well designed or not. It's what they wanted, right? They they're going to buy mm-hmm. what they want. And it was like, well, thank God, all we have, we we still have that requirement where you need an architect stamp. And I would, and I'm just thinking, those days are numbered. 
right? Because if that were to change, it just talks about everything that you just said, which is everything changes big time. Yeah, and we've already been seeing that kind of be whittled away slowly over time. So uh, there was an amazing diagram, and I, every every so often I try to search for it and I come up short, but I remember coming across a diagram that showed basically the regulatory landscape across every state mm. in the U.S. and what you could build without the need for a stamp. Yeah. And I think if I remember, I mean, at Florida, I remember that it was like, I think up to two stories. Right. You could design something and not need yeah. an architect to stamp. And so if you take that and you see how like it's being encroached upon, like by, you know, even changes now with COVID um, where like, I think because of COVID as a sort of a direct result, um, governor DeSantis in Florida made it so that you don't need a license anymore to practice landscape architecture. Mm. So remove that as a requirement in order to open up commerce, right. Or, or open up the market for more citizens to be able to do that. And I think internal interior designers were able to lobby to protect that, but I think they were um, sort of on the hook for that. But, you know, any of these things that are sort of that, yeah. And I think someone uh, in a recent conversation was arguing, well, the license is really to protect people. And that is true. But what happens a lot of times, and there's like a, a theory called regulatory capture, which suggests that the people that are regulated um, find ways in which to control the conversation of regulation. And so they accrue all the benefits of regulation. Mm-hmm. This is why companies like Facebook, Google, like, yeah, they're, they're always going to tell you, yeah, we're in favor of regulation. We want to be in the room when it happens. They want to design right? it. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll design. And so intentionally so that it, it's harder for new entrants to emerge. Yeah. So if that is the case, which is, I mean, the benefits for the public is is true, but, you know, there's already such a regulatory environment that exists around suing people. I mean, this is like the, the yeah. U.S. in particular is has, has a legal environment that, that's you know more susceptible to being sued. You would think that that would sort of play itself out in a way where maybe to another point, like it's not even that the architect would be necessary. They just go for the structural engineer. Like yeah. they would figure out other pieces that actually carry that load of risk mm-hmm. more uh, concretely or at least more innately. Like, I mean, I don't think anybody, when, when people think about architects in general, they think about an expensive designer. Mm-hmm. They don't necessarily see the part of like, well, an architect is supposed to prevent you from dying, mm-hmm. which I think would be, I, I feel like that would be the stronger marketing position <laughs> right it's like right. yeah we're like a doctor we prevent death we encourage safety we not so much about what typically happens which is more about like yeah we design really cool spaces mm-hmm. well i mean it starts to speak to some of those links that you sent over about potential conversation points talking about you know aggregation theory from ben thompson and talking about how you know like you're saying like if one thing really changes everything changes uh, it does seem like there's a potential for a huge domino effect because of a lot of the new entrants into the AEC space that are they're they're going after vertical markets. You have another whole kind of idea around the horizontality of how architects operate. So, I mean, where where does that go from here? What are you seeing that's happening to where the landscape of architecture is fundamentally potentially changing? I think the, the the verticalization is really interesting. So what you're seeing is a, a lot of new s- startups that have emerged that are attacking a very specific typology mm-hmm. and just pro- trying to prioritize it. Right. So 
you know, WeWork um, to some extent was doing is doing that. And there are some new ones like uh, one called Apartment, which has just been written about. Um, there's also other startups that are focused on ADUs. There's a lot of them, actually. It's like the first step for anybody trying to join a startup is out of architecture is probably to join an ADU company. Right. But there's there's, um, you know, and they're just like really focused on a very tight problem. What's what's sort of interesting and maybe less in the case of cover because of that, you know, regulatory uh, environment where it's likely that they can put one of their ADUs on your property without needing the sign off of an architect. Yeah. You know, in the other case of like apartment where you're talking about high rises, you know, th- there's just all these kind of new interests that are trying to claim that they're vert- f- fully vertically integrated. And the only thing really preventing that from happening is the fact that like on a state by state basis, they have to hire an AOR. Mm-hmm. That is pretty much like any of these co-working companies similar to WeWork. Like that's part of the playbook is like, you know, if you're going to go into a new market, you have to find an AORs to partner up with yeah. uh, or at least one that can sign off in multiple states. So th- the purely v- vertically integrated model isn't really there mm-hmm. because, of that. You get those because, the, because of that. Yeah. So where, where I see the opportunity in some degree is like, well, from the architect's perspective, yeah, that looks really interesting to jump into. Mm-hmm. Right. Like at least those architects that are trying to be entrepreneur and move into to, to use like their more accessible talents into to do something. But there's very little conversation around the horizontal opportunities within the industry itself, or, or rather like, let's say the value chain of, of how buildings get, get put together, which means that like architects are just one modular mm-hmm. component of that value chain, right? Right. You have your engineers, your, your contractors and whatnot. But some of the things that I get more excited about is, when people are trying to just remove the hassle out of vertical, like out, out of things that every architecture firm faces, mm-hmm. which is why like, monograph is compelling to me because of that. Mm-hmm. Like the idea is that over time, the all the back office stuff that architects don't want to think about, we can take over yeah. and we can just like automate and make it seamless for you and, and provide kind of insights on that. Yep. But there's other interesting startups that are doing that, like upcodes, mm-hmm. right? Upcodes was a gnarly problem within the industry which is like well somewhat solved but half solved by uh an incumbent others yeah Uh, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) but they they came in they saw like the opportunity was in actually improving the experience to actually make it easier to use and more accessible and like um just reducing that friction yeah on the flip side because they're approaching it from also a kind of tech mentality first as well um, they make it accessible as an API or they can at least like yeah. start to make it accessible to a point where a machine where, you know, for those that might not be aware, like an API is being just a way for a machine to talk to another machine. Yeah. When you can start to do that, then you can layer on new things on top of that. Like there could be a startup that emerges that's just built entirely on top of upcodes. Yeah. And so that those kind of uh, opportunities or where I think is like really, really interesting Whereas like trying to cut across the entire industry to focus on specific yeah. typologies, the uh, leap to learn, you know, how to, um, you know, first do that. But it's also capital intensive and all this other stuff. Like I just think those resources could be better spent on thinking about what are the things that that firms, that the industry does every single day, the kind of problems that are unstructured where I mean, and by that, I mean, like data that just lives like in really gnarly, unformatted 
ways that mm-hmm. could be made s- structured and machine readable. Right. That is where like, yeah, I think that that's where like there's so much more opportunity to help tackle what what people constantly talk about, which is like the lack of productivity in the construction industry or the built environment in general. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I talked to Scott at once about when he came in to, to do a demo of Upcodes and I thought the potential was huge for a multitude of reasons. You know, there's obviously the main kind of selling point that they're making, which is, you know, focus on better things to do rather than this stuff. But I also saw it from like a team standpoint or an emerging architect standpoint or a project architect standpoint where the team has an opportunity to own the codes over their building where before that to mm-hmm. me, was very much in the hands of a gatekeeper, somebody who's extremely specialized in doing that kind of work. And they don't often have that. I don't want to say they don't have that team teaching mentality. Of course, a lot of them do. But it's, but it, you know, everybody kind of gets into their, their thing and that's all they do. And especially with work from home, you never see that person again, right? And you don't have those opportunities yeah. for cross pollination. And to me, a tool like Upcodes really starts to shine a light on why things, because basically the architect's job is to figure out ways around the code, right? Or to be able to justify certain things. And if upcodes can help surface information there to make it so that people make informed decisions and they're excited about that and they feel empowered by the data that they're seeing, that's better for architecture. And so to me, like a lot of people are scared to death of upcodes taking away their job. I see it the other way around. I see it as people enabling people to do a better job being architects. And and so, yeah, they can focus on better things, but it also surfaces those conversations to the top around codes. And there's so many other yeah. kind of those types of things happening with the technologies that we're seeing start to come out or had, that have been out that to me are really exciting for people owning the information and owning more of the decisions that are made around why we make buildings the way we do. Yeah, I mean, at the risk of like... One of my problems is like I have a lot of ideas and I just kind of throw them out there in very public format sometimes, hoping that somebody will pick it up. Yeah, ideas Uh, are free, man. (laughs) Ideas are free. Execution is what matters. Yes. (laughs) um, And and actually, I'll I'll preface this by saying that if anybody is actually interested in working on these problems, I will kind of publicly announce it right now here on the podcast that we, uh, myself and some three other people, started an angel investment syndicate uh, specifically with uh, hoping to accrue as many angel investors from the AAC community in order to invest into startups that are tackling these type of problems. Awesome. And it's called Spatial Syndicate. Okay. I was going to ask you the name. Yeah. Yeah. But the the things that I that I think are really interesting is like, if you look at, you break down the operations that a firm does on a, like, on a day-to-day basis and you map it out, it's like, here are all the kind of processes, here's the, all the types of information we did. And here is the potential impact it might have for a cust- for a client or mm-hmm. customer. One really interesting problem that happens a lot in the industry is like the cost of anything is always sort of nebulous. If you just look at the theme of cost and how it re- like influences and perception of those different stakeholders to let's say owners, right, mm-hmm. who are the most probably interested in to know what the cost of things are. Sure, it's just like so much. It's just a fog, like. You know, it, it happens totally. where like in you would think that by now, you know, if there was maybe even just a percentage of the people that are in, in the kind of AC community that are interested in automation, yeah. 
would focus their efforts on trying to tackle how to price things out uh-huh. at the very beginning of a design process. What that would change from a value for the client perspective would be pretty insane. I mean, like, and in, in, in here's, here's sort of the pitch. It's like if you're able to take, let's say, real-time pricing, and, and by the, the real-time part is the most difficult part, right? That, that's where, like, if you're able to tackle that, that's where you have, like, an incredible moat against anybody else. But being able to give you real-time pricing estimates across any location and material that you're using in the United States or even the world, but like, let's say in the States, there's so much you can do from that from a, from a supply chain perspective, but there's also so much you can do for adding value back to the owner mm-hmm. where it's like your designs have at the end of the day, some implication, some estimate of what it will actually cost. And you can bake in variance. You can say like, you know, contingency might change, blah, blah, blah. Like certainly different economic factors can impact that. But at least the, the architect comes at it from a position of strength um, without having to hire other consultants necessarily to try to give them that information. Right. And so embedding that within the design process from the beginning is one of those ways in which you can continuously add value, right? But an architecture firm by itself will not be able to build this out. It has to be on someone yeah. else that's just focused completely on tackling that issue. Right. There, there are so many little, uh, you know, little's the wrong word, but little things like that, that, it is pretty amazing how many of those are not solved. And, and I think it kind of goes back to where we started with everybody's so driven on the, the ruts that have been created over time that they're not questioning why or what would make this easier, what would remove friction, what would be more convenient, because those are the things that people want day in and day out. You know, that's what your clients want. That's what your customers, like however you want to say that, that's what they want is they want answers. They want them fast. They want them drive through, right? They want them app. They want to ask Siri. They want to ask Alexa and they want the answer. And to me, those are the places where tech is really capitalizing, especially on AEC that's had such low innovation over the last, you know, 50, 60, 70 years because those ruts are so deep. I mean, that's such a good point about like, if we talk about assumptions that the industry has, maybe myths or assumptions, one, assu- one assumption is that the buyer or the customer or client is going to stay the same or mm-hmm. that their mm-hmm. buying habits will are immutable, yeah. like, which is not the case. Nope. Uh, and definitely technology has changed those expectations yep. where, you know, there is such an opportunity to provide such a much, a much better customer experience. Like, I hardly ever hear that mm-hmm. as a concept brought up right? right whereas in like you know we have functions dedicated completely on making sure you have a great a journey you have a great experience with with our company we have a a customer success function that's sole job is to try to make it easier for you to understand how the product works and to make sure that you're successful so that like you still put your faith and trust in us and and you know and your your capital, yep. but but that's not really part of the conversation. And I wonder if like there was a a switch where firms really saw their function as providing value in any sort of way. It doesn't have to be a building. It's just like you know. And ultimately, most owners, depending on typology, come to you as a, as a firm as uh, you know they see you as an expert in something. Mm-hmm. And if if firms position themselves to be like not just about providing a, a great customer experience but also 
managing people's risk, which is another kind of part of this whole conversation that like essentially what these owners are also asking of architects is to manage their risks. Mm -hmm. So like there's just a much more customer facing mentality in general and more like a consultative in in some ways uh, experience where, yeah, at the end of the day, it could be a building in some ways, but maybe it's like, maybe we can tell you that that land is not the right land to actually invest in or. Yeah. Maybe the answer is not a building. Yeah, maybe the answer is not a building. It, it reframes the position of like how they see you mm-hmm. and they see you more on their side, on their team, as opposed to just like a service provider to some degree. And, you know, that could be one way in which you sort of bring in this kind of other mentality into the firm that's more, uh, you know, without having to bring in tech. But yeah, I mean, I think that's a huge opportunity for firms. It's just like, what if you just started with like, what are the what's the journey of your client? Mm-hmm. All the way from the beginning, like let's say it's a residential property. The first thing that they're probably asking uh, a res- uh, someone that's looking to maybe construct a new home, they're asking themselves is not who's my architect going to be. It's like, well, how do I even go about this? Yeah. Like, what are all the steps? Right. And if, if you started from that and you mapped out all the different questions that they had along the way to finally thinking about hiring an architect, and you figured out and your firm figured out ways to be helpful along that journey whether by like doing things like actually writing content, free content online that Valuable anybody content. that searches, <laughs> yeah, yeah how, do, yeah, how do I come across you? Like all that is in service of providing a better experience and building trust, which, I, you know, if you do that, I can assure you that the people that end up coming across your website for those type of answers, for that type of support and help will pick you to design their, their yeah, project. Right. But yeah, I mean this 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 line of questioning the the kind of marketing and like how to be a it's like one that I'm also really have put a lot of thought around um, just from my own role at, at Monograph too, thinking about marketing in general. I just keep thinking about like how can practice oper how, how can this idea of like operations within a practice really be changed to adopt some of the most up to date ways of doing things? Yeah, I mean there there's so much potential there, right? There, there's so much potential there. I feel like one of the interesting things that you guys are doing, um, and we talked with previous people on this show about similar offerings, like they're focusing on building tools for lots of architects rather than focusing on one firm's way of doing things. So I'm, I'm wondering like, what, what do you see as the potential there? Because to me, like going back, you know, earlier in this conversation and talking about architectural education, professional practice, licensure, and the the future landscape of what this profession may or may not offer is kind of a big question mark. And all of that stuff would have to be retooled to prepare people to practice in that future version of this. I mean, it's, it's, you, we talk about education, always preparing people to operate the way we used to do it <laughs> anyway, because it's, Obviously, there's lots of cutting edge coursework and stuff out there, but for the most part, like the practice stuff is all based on how we either do things now or how we've how we've done things, but not how we're going to be doing things. So yeah. it, the tool makers out there, like you guys, I mean, how do you view that, and and why why are you choosing to do what you're doing? Because I think that there's like a huge satisfaction in building tools. I love the whole idea of in the firm I work for building tools, but I also love the idea of building tools so that the profession gets better. I mean, do you guys think about that or talk about that? Yeah. I mean, architects are our champions. We're trying to enable them to be better at what they do. 
and right now monograph is really a tool for a lot of smaller firms uh, and so what we're trying to do there is like remove a lot of the let's say challenge that they, the, the challenges that they face on a daily basis when it comes to like keeping track of time and other things like that but and and partially it's about trying to figure out how to be a, a much more integrated solution meaning that like right now in the smaller so the firm size landscape there are all these different tools that people are using together to try to hobble hobble them together we actually just recently changed the website to say no more spreadsheets because we realized that like spreadsheets are are actually the the thing that we're fighting against it's not even like you know to some degree it's like you think about all the other incumbents that are already providing sort of tools it's like no it's not even that like when you're talking to even almost any size firm the real challenge is that they do all these things you know i I can't tell you how many interesting spreadsheets we've come across like sure customers share their current workflows with us and it's all some variant mostly just different different styling but all trying to get at the same thing everybody's building the same tool yep yeah everyone so like if you think about the time and effort it takes to build that system out for yourself right versus like working with uh, you know hiring a company to outsourcing outsourcing that job to be done to a company that can help facilitate that for you it's uh it's a lot and it's also like you know ideally what we're doing is making it so that you have to put less effort and time and thinking into these tools themselves so yeah we definitely think about that i mean other things that we think about is just like where is project management not really met or like for the context for listeners like monograph is does a lot of different things in a sense, but it basically tackles how time becomes revenue. Mm-hmm. So we have time tracking as a way to to create projects, which also allow you to build against that time and all, all the other kind of costs associated with that. So for us, this idea of like, how do we add value to that whole process comes down to like, how are we going to make it, how are we making it easier to input time? But then how are we also making it easier to think about what a project actually is? Mm. And so, Recently, we came across this interesting perspective where like most people think about contracts as divorced from a project. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that you have the project manager that typically is the one that's sort of it has to be the one that understands what is being done versus what is in the contract itself. Mm-hmm. Most projects are actually generated, even how, how it's organized. Sometimes it's not actually talking to the contract. Yeah. And so for us. It's really interesting to explore what does a solution do mean when over time it can actually understand what you put in a contract and structure a project accordingly. Mm-hmm. And so that that's sort of where our head's really thinking about. It's like almost like first principles to a project. Yeah. It's like the first principle of a project is actually starts at a proposal to some degree. And then that kind of becomes a legal document at some point. And then that legal document has within it all of the things that then become a project. Yeah, the stipulations. It seems like the stipulations could in some way be codified so that uh, something could learn from those. Yeah, and and so it, it, what's fascinating to us is that like people think some might think that like, oh, project management is sort of a solved thing. Like there's so many tools out there, but it's like, it's not. It's actually like, has just not been really thought deeply about. Yeah. It's been more sort of like companies have come across, they just took a spreadsheet and they just created it in a kind of a interesting GUI. For us, it's like actually challenging that assumption and saying like, no, actually, there's a lot more here that can be rethought and streamlined yeah. in a way that would only be like a magical experience yeah. for 
someone starting a firm. We're like, oh, wow, you, you handle all of this for us. That is amazing. Now I can just, you know, it's like chipping away at that whole section of like non-billable hours. Yeah. Like how do we earn that right to just like keep chipping away to that uh, spend that most, that most firms do? even to the point of like uh, additional services sort of anecdotally like we've come across i don't have a number to this but basically a very large number of people that we talk to give away additional services and that is really interesting because we come across cases where f- of firms that actually don't give away additional services they're actually pretty like in some ways very ruthless about how they review additional services and we find that their profit margins are above 50%, like the, the margins that they're, that they're generating on work is, is crazy because they don't, they actually approach their work as a lawyer might approach their mm-hmm. time. Yeah. It, there's just interesting perspectives on how, how operations should play out. And if, if at least what we can do is make it easier for you to know yeah. whether the work you're doing is a, is a risky proposition, like things like that. I think we can, we can have a huge impact on how the industry thinks about the work that it does and and hopefully have a really positive impact on that. Yeah, like the whole reason for capturing data along the life of a project, I would hope, would be so that you can look at it. You know, you hear the word dashboard all the time. But but the whole purpose of that is so that you can gain insight out of what's going on under the hood because it's very hard to take that data just raw as it is and and figure out what's actually going on. But if you can visualize that in some way that starts to connect dots in interesting ways, like the ways you're talking about, when you're talking about potential riskiness or you've done all this work, uh, you're not getting paid for it, right? <laughs> it's like it, it could actually potentially tell you that, right? Uh, it, it takes yeah. me back to thinking about the conversation I had with Scott with Upcodes, too, and talking about it just saying, you know, now you've got a choice to make. You could increase your allowable area by doing this it's a kind of a choose your own adventure at some point right where it's like well if you did this this could be an outcome if you did this it could be an outcome but you still have to decide what that thing is but that's Mm kind of neat to me right where the technology is actually giving you the lever to be able to make that choice where oftentimes it just gets ignored Granted, like we we make decisions on projects every day, and that's what a project is. It's just an addition of tons and tons and tons of decisions, right? And so to document those decisions and to have the ability to go back to that point in time and say, here's why we decided what we decided. And you actually have that data to point at and say, nope, right here, this is why we did that. Everybody's fine with that. It's when you don't have that answer. Um, And and I think a lot of times that we just don't even want to have that question come up. And so we avoid it completely. Um, and that's why people just continue to, you know, quote unquote, that's the way we've always done it is because it's the tried and true best practice standard. But a lot of times that's not insight in there, right? It's just, we're just doing it the way we did last time because that's the most expedient thing to do right now. I think that that's where the huge potential of a lot of this technology is, is to unearth those potentials you still get to act on them. You still get to decide. But I think there's a lot of hidden opportunities, or they've been hidden from us for so long that that's where there's there's so much excitement for me in the tools that I'm seeing coming out. I just that, but then what happens when all these tools get to talk together too and the kind of additional value that they add? 
Yeah, you talked about the API. I mean, it's like the 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 old adage is software is eating the world, but now it's the API is eating the world, right? It's like that the ability yeah. for these things to talk to each other and not operate independently. And there's no import export. It's just live data on the cloud all the time. Yeah, I mean, I, I could see where like my time at WeWork was also kind of interesting in that I got to see how the sausage is made across the entire sort of pipeline of, of a project mm-hmm. and how data is carried through throughout that. And what was most interesting at the time was like looking at how data that started at the beginning of like even, let's say, trying to find a space or acquire a property, how that data basically sort of died in a silo as as opposed to like oh, totally. what would happen was <laughs> that like the marketing team would come and say like, hey, where can we find information about this location so we can use it to market, right? Right. right. But then that was like buried somewhere. Right. And so what was very revealing about that experience was like, oh, like it actually makes a lot of sense. The data just sort of lives through the entire life cycle of that project. Mm -hmm. And then what does that mean to build a business in which like everybody has that sort of visibility and everyone can play in the same tools. And so then like there's less maybe redundant work that happens, but there's also the opportunity for better collaboration because then, you know, as an example, development teams and marketers when they're going after an rfq um or or an rfp they might try to line up what that product is going to look like who are the people involved and what happens they have to like ping a project manager right to find out hey what are this what are you working on they don't have access to that data yeah they don't have access right right whereas like in mon like in tool like monograph like if you have your marketing team on there they have the entire they know what everyone's working on yeah they know they can break and they can help construct a little bit what that team might look like in advance. Yeah. And then come to somebody and say like, Hey, what does this look like to you? At least. And that's the kind of start of like rethinking how people can collaborate together to remove those barriers and inefficiencies that exist because it's, it's a, it's almost like an unnecessary silo. And so one of the things that like we're big on in monograph now talking about is this idea of practice operations, primarily because we think that like, I mean, we've seen it in other types of businesses, the more vertically integrated ones, where you have people at a functional level that are actually interested in how the entire equation of the business operates. And so they're looking to see how can you put, let's say, resources and initiatives to pull levers across Mm -hmm. that life cycle. Mm -hmm. So in a firm, it's like your business development team is focused on bringing projects in. So number of projects would be a metric that you would look at. How many of those turn into contracts would be another met- metric all the way down to like how many of those get delivered at the end of the day, right? Get a fully turned over project. Somebody in a practice operations type role would be looking at like, what are all the initiatives that we can do to have a major impact on one of those levers? So like if someone in the team focused on how to like empower business development and I'll explain why it has to be cross-functional, but someone uh, figured out how to add resources to figure out those problems on the business operations side. Uh, business development side, then that would have a huge impact on like deal flow right. for the firm. Right. If someone figured out how to maybe like the whole contract process that we have is just really inefficient. Maybe we should spend like a month redesigning our how we actually deliver contracts to our clients and or parse or like rewrite them so that they're easier to understand or something to design a better contract that would then increase the number of contracts that close or increase how long it takes for those contracts to close. Mm-hmm. All of that, if you map it out in the equation of your firm, would have a huge net, net effect on the, the back end, right? Yeah. So for every dollar spending on a business development person or a marketer, 
you're seeing like that, you know, these levers just like have an exponential impact. So to some degree, we feel a monograph that we have to be the voice of that. And I just can't write enough content yeah, right. to like. <laughs> <laughs> well, that to me is the the huge kind of that's what's so attractive about tool building is that it tools are leverage, right? They enable you to do something that you can't do without it, or maybe a better way or a more modern streamlined data rich way to do it. And, and to me, like that's empowering people to do their best work. And if it can surprise and delight them and be enjoyable to use, even like that's huge, that's even better. And so I, I think that's something that I'm really impressed with the work that you guys are doing with the work that I've seen lately is the way that you've been able to come up with visual layers on top of real data and real leverage underneath the hood so that I could just imagine like somebody who works in spreadsheets all day, like you said, it's a no more spreadsheets or Outlook all day long. They would look at a tool like what you guys have. And I think this goes for a lot of modern tools in the architectural profession where they're trying to get away from complexity and they're trying to go towards simplicity and they're trying to democratize that to a certain level, right? So that more people have access to it, like you said, because then the more eyeballs that are on it, the more we understand the whole business and how and how my lever affects something downstream, um, you get to yeah. see that happen. I think that's what's so appealing about this stuff is and, and attractive because it, it is one of those things where you can actually see the potential play out. And that is incredibly, I mean, it's valuable for the firm, but it's, it's really remarkable and kind of satisfying. There's a lot of satisfaction, I think, for the tool builders out there as well, because you mm -hmm. are helping people do better work, which is adding value to the, to the planet we live on, right? I mean, like, like, you can think about a really big picture because we are having an impact, right? Yeah, it, there's a there's a point there that you made where the kind of issue of like, you know, providing that data and all that, there's still a cultural component that we we have no control over to some degree, even as a as a as a tool maker. Right. We can provide that data. But then we also, at least in Monograph, have policies, right, that allow firms to toggle who gets to see what. Yeah. And to some degree, that's an area where we like we, we want to empower people to yeah. be able to map it to what they want. And over time, what we hope is that through education, through case studies, through, you know, other examples, we can sort of pull people to see like the, the value in actually opening up yeah. their business to everyone that's part of it. And I, one of the interesting things that we worked too was that, you know, for the, almost anybody that wanted it had access to all the data driving the business decisions in the company, hmm. whether it was on Tableau or Looker, you had access to be able to like see, you know, revenue for the on, on the on the office space side. You be able, you could see like how different buildings were performing on a granular basis. So if you're a designer, you can see like, oh, that product that I designed back in X, you know, February that opened in February. Yeah. How is that? Doing? That level of transparency across the organization removes the barrier of asking questions. Removes yeah. having like it's like you create this hive mind mentality over time mm. will empower that they can just go and yeah. do something that's going to benefit the company. Cause most people, they want to do right by the, by the community of their work, right. Of the people yeah. that they work next. To. Right. So when you have scenarios where like, what, what I would like to see basically is more firms really seeing that, that I can, maybe like we should just let people understand what the project cost looks like. 
let people understand. And, and to some degree, there is that kind of conflict of, well, it might be too much noise for the employees. So like maybe, you know, it, it might be too distracting for them or whatnot to know this stuff. But like you, by helping everyone become a better allocator of capital, mm-hmm. right, whether that's their time or whatever, to understand what the business needs right. and how they can provide a better service, I think you're going to reap benefits from that. I think it's the negative is when everybody, pedantic is not the right word, but there's this idea that like, oh, I know what's best for you yeah, sort of thing. Where like in reality, like, no, let, like give agency to the people that work underneath you because they might surprise you. They might actually oh, totally. um, yeah. take ownership, which I think like when you have a team that like... Fortunately, working in teams that do that, it's like, yeah, it's a whole different animal. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's really refreshing to see that happen. And and I think you're right. Like when you start to open that data up so that other people can see and make better decisions based on it for the betterment of, you know, we're all in this together rather than we're not. Because you're not. I mean, if we're talking about a firm, a medium, small or a large firm, you're not talking about a crew of independent contractors. You're, you're talking about everybody who works at the same company, and there should be, I think, there should be a lot of sharing that goes on there because what I do impacts what you do. And ultimately, at the end of the day, we are all in this together, and so we should treat it like that. I think that our profession comes from a long history of very introverted kind of thinking in that way. And I don't, I don't mean that like in the true sense of the word, but I mean, like it's very inward looking. It's not, it's not like looking at it from the big picture and it's not looking at it from a enabling. It's looking at it from a protecting point of view. Right. So Mm. I think that that is something that our, our profession has to deal with in a much um, more proactive way. And I think tools like the ones that you guys have, like you said, like if you, if you can actually work toward turning those, switches off or maybe by default they're off and you have to make a decision to turn them on to limit visibility then at least people have to struggle with making that decision i hope they struggle with making that decision we're we're going through something similar to that right now and and there's some people who are seriously risk averse and they want to shut everything down and then you got the other side of well why are we doing this in the first place then why are we doing this at all then if we're just going to shut it all down so that nobody can see it what's the point right and i think Like it, it becomes, at least it becomes a conversation that you have out loud and you decide those things together. And ultimately somebody has got to be the, the decider, but it's, it is one of those important conversations to have and continue to have as we move forward and adopt these new tools that expose, give us the potential to expose that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, I mean, even, even this idea of like, uh, you know, ultimately for these, for, for most firms, their real resource is the talent that they have on their team. Mm-hmm. And if a point of differentiation between why someone should stay at your firm versus go somewhere else, right? And Because that would be a conservative position to say, oh, well, I mean, it's a pretty conservative position to say, I want people to stay on my, you know, work, keep, can continue to work here. It's a very sort of risk-averse position. Yeah. Uh, you don't want people leaving. And the reason why you don't want them leaving is because actually when you drill into the data, it's expensive. Yeah. Like, right. <laughs> it takes a lot of money to find a talented individual. Right. That is going to take about six months to on ramp at your company to yeah. really internalize how it works. And if you approach it from the mindset of like, well, what can I do to keep this person here uh, because of that cost? Right. Then things start to f- slowly turn over and they start to flip. And you say, actually, my one of my real near term risks is that people decide to leave for X number of reasons. And if I don't focus on like how to create a culture that 
can keep people here mm-hmm. and make it feel like they are living their they're, they're being their most like um, productive, but also like aspirationally, they feel like they're yeah. doing the work here that they couldn't do anywhere else. Living their best life. Yep. Living their best <laughs> life. That has a real Im- impact. I mean, sure. I think like, I mean, you just see it, and I and I say this because like it's such a it's such a big conversation in technology where like on the supply side of talent, it's it's uh, pretty constrained. Like it's actually uh, at least on the engineering side. Let's so you know because of COVID things have changed around there, but. But even then, like talent, like retaining talent is a huge conversation. Yeah. How do you keep people, you know, motivated and feeling like they're doing the best life? Because I think it was a recent podcast with Dave Fano, uh, since he's doing like his uh, new startup focused on a, basically this kind of conversation. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, he, he'll be the first to tell you that like most people don't know in architecture, but most people in other industries don't stay more than two years mm-hmm. and that love that kind of tenure has a lot of consequences mm-hmm. but i think firms that really take that kind of data point seriously should really rethink of like how are they doing things in order to make it feel like everybody's an owner and make everyone feel like they're really aligned to the mission that they're trying to to do because otherwise you're going to end the pain close to i mean i don't know what what the average is on finding talent but you're going to be paying close to like you know, nine months or whatever is one consequence of it. Right. Plus the uncapturable and unmeasurable, you know, impact that it has on morale, on like other people on your team, like right. just all the other things that really slow you down as a business and actually can hurt you. Yeah. And it also just, it sucks. It hurts the industry. Right. Right. That's an interesting point. I there's I think there's a lot more to say there, but I think, I feel like we should start wrapping up here. So I want to, <laughs> I want to pivot this, this conversation to my three questions that I ask my guests to kind of tie everything together. I think that's one of my favorite parts of the show because I get to learn something about you personally. So the first question is personal hack, something that you do. What, what do you do? It could be anything could be physical. It could be digital. It could be tech. It could be analog. It could be just, it's something that you do to help yourself perform better. What do you got for us? On the performance side, it's like I'll, the one thing that comes to mind instinct, just like from my gut, is to say that I'm a avid consumer of content, and I don't know if that's actually a good thing or a bad thing. I, I think it's played out positively, but you know, I'm I subscribe to a lot of YouTube channels, mm-hmm. I listen to a lot of podcasts. I'm just like my mind not working on something. It's almost like a fish that stops moving. It, it just it, after a while, I just it's. I get antsy. So how do you escape that? Or do you ever escape that? Is this just a constant thing? Or do you ever intentionally try to escape that? I guess I should ask. I do. I mean, I do try to be, I do try to be present or more so I try to be present and, you know, definitely at home. I think it's a constant battle. Yeah. uh, To try to be present in that front. But I am cognizant that it's like it has its benefits to me, which is which is sort of like the affirming part. It's almost like survivorship bias. It's like, oh, but it's worked. It's actually helped me, you know, uh, to survive. But I know that it's not necessarily super sustainable. Yeah. That said, like, do enjoy the moments in which I'm not where I'm, I am much more present and like just like going out in nature, like with my family and stuff is really I, I would say those are the moments in which I can more fully just like breathe in natural air and like yeah not so plugged in achieve some balance there maybe yeah yeah but from a productivity perspective it's just more like it does help me be more reflective and kind of think about how am i doing things and i'm always just curious to learn more about maybe how to be more productive which Mm -hmm. 
think someone on Twitter made, made a joke about how like that in itself is sort of <laughs> defeating, right? It's like, oh, I'm constantly learning how to be more productive, but in, at the end of the day, I'm not. I don't know. That's one thing. And the other thing would probably be like Notion. Uh, we use Notion and Monograph, and um, I use it at home from time to time too, but more more so at work. And pretty much it's just like I write everything down. Yeah, like same. Just write everything down. Let everybody read it. Just like see what I'm thinking and have it all, all the documents open so that, you know, it's a better way of just communicating with each other asynchronously. Yeah. I love that tool as well. I use it. I'm using it right now. Take all my show notes for this. It's been fantastic. So I'll, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Um, next question. I think this, what you just mentioned leads into this is who are you listening to or reading right now? Uh, you know, one of the, one of the questions came up when I, I did a, a panel discussion, it was what, what was your, what's your favorite productivity tool? And so that's not exactly the question I just asked, right? But it's it's related, and you answered it. It's it was my answer to the to the crowd was YouTube, and it's like you know there's a bunch of people rolling their eyes, but holy crap, you know there's everything and everything on YouTube. There is everything and everything on YouTube. It's amazing. It's an amazing tool. And yes, you can go down rabbit holes. It's like the early days of the internet to me, right? Where it's like, and this leads to that, and this leads to that, and that leads to that. Because everything, you know, just the algorithm is is real. But man, what an amazing tool. So who are you listening to? What are you reading? I mean, the answer could be YouTube, but maybe it's not. Give us a, an idea of, of who's influencing George. Let's say on YouTube. On YouTube, I'm actually like one of my... I have two two different channels that I like I indulge with one is called nerd writer I don't know his actual name yet I only know him as nerd writer but it's this guy who's been for a long time been doing these videos that are like just video, very short video essays seven minutes long about a very specific topic typically to do with film or culture or something like everything from like uh, how Steven Spielberg uh, frames a shot right or like from a, and it like really poetically can kind of guide that sort of deep dive He's one that I, I very much enjoy watching his stuff. And the other one is uh, Corridor Crew, which is these group. They have the, the – it's Corridor Crew is the company, I believe, or Corridor Digital. That they yeah, Corridor do, Digital. Yeah, yeah so they, they do all these kind of like um, VFX work, yeah. right? And they have these like VFX artists react or stunt people react to films, right? And they yeah, kind yeah. of just like teardowns. And that one was always like a source of inspiration for me because it. I recently wrote something on Twitter about like, well, if I started my own firm, it's a pretty long Twitter thread about what I would do. And um, from a marketing perspective, I just see that also as a huge opportunity. Like the fact that there isn't someone building a brand on YouTube related to architecture um, is such a missed opportunity. As an example, Architectural Digest has these videos where it's like an architect where they film really nicely an architect reacting to buildings used in set design, uh-huh. right? For movies, those view, those videos alone have two point something million views. Wow. And it's, if you talk about like audience building and from, from the architect's perspective and how it actually historically has played into some form of more public figures like BRK as being maybe the most, uh, BRK angles and big group being like the, the most prominent near-term example of someone that just came out and like really took on a platform like YouTube to yeah. sort of catapult himself. Um, I still think that there's untapped opportunity for a new firm to come out or even maybe an existing firm and just really look at content as like 
the thing that they're going to do, but not do it in the same way where like, hey, here's our projects, but like really plug into like how people consume content nowadays and what they care about. Like there's a reason why HGTV is popular yeah, and has been. For sure. And it's not because it's reductive, which it could be to something, but it's just they figured out a format that works. And if marketing or at least departments or firms really approach that idea of format and how to communicate, how to build a better audience through format, I think that'd be very powerful. So anyway, Corridor Digital, they're doing some awesome stuff. Uh, really love watching their their deep dives. And then in general, I like to really read a lot about strategy. So like uh, people like Ben Thompson, who is just almost like the, the I mean, he's basically taking the mantle of uh, Clayton Christensen. Clayton Christensen and just basically yeah. expanding upon that yeah. uh, for like what it means today when it comes to like the big, what he calls that, aggregators, um, yeah. like Google, Facebook. And then now there's a whole host of people typically within the tech industry that are where kind of trying to break into that strategy space as well. And they're writing some really interesting things uh, about it, just like the, the concepts like value chain integration versus modularity. So anyway, those are the kind of things that, that I read about. So so you and me, we're going to start this YouTube channel and I'm going to cut that whole part out of the podcast. And we, got, <laughs> we got it. This is- <laughs> That's good. I mean, it's just architects. It would just be uh, architects react. Yes. And then we just figure out like what, what, I mean, horror films, like you just react to horror films. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've seen the corridor digital one where they're, they're talking about, you know, all the old VFX and star Wars and how painstaking they were. And, and they're just, you know, their jaws are on the floor because they actually go through and break it all down. It's, it's really fun to watch. That's a great, it's a great channel. And then there's also like the, the elderly react in VR, right? <laughs> to <laughs> to, to yep. the Oculus Rift or the, the, you know, and they're put them in a zombie game or something. It's it's awesome. Yeah, it's good stuff. But nowadays, I mean, if like, let's even just think about the younger generation that's coming out where like Twitch is a predominant yeah. platform for consumption. Like people like to watch other people do things. Snap. Like, yep. It could TikTok. be you and I could just yeah. like design a summer home for somebody. Yeah. And like all we would be doing is recording ourselves. Just live stream it. Yep. Just live stream it. And just like, well, here, what do you think about this? Oh, well, I think about this. And like making a model, just like live stream yourself making a model. Yeah. And like people, people will put that on just to, for therapeutic purposes. Yes. yes. Well, that's like my, my other podcast, Speak. I've had lots of people write in over the years to, to us and talk about how they're retired. They sit alone at a drafting table overlooking a lake somewhere because they're rich, retired architects, right? Living the dream. And they just have it on in the background so that they can feel like they're in the studio, right? They want to hear architectural banter. (laughs) So you could literally just record architectural banter, (laughs) put it out there as a show, and someone will listen to it. I mean, it, it is pretty incredible. Yeah. All right. So, so last question, not really a question, but where can people find out more about you, everything that you're doing online? Where's the best place to, to see, you know, just follow along? Probably my Twitter would be the best. So it's at George Valdez. And that's probably where I'm like, just brain dumping yeah. mostly. Uh, I agree. Other than that, I'd be remiss if I'd say sign up, if I didn't say you should sign up for Monograph and try it out. <laughs> you have to. You're contractually obligated to say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, no, but it's because I really do believe like we we are really trying to tackle a hard problem. We are listening. I mean, we, we try to really be like everything I talked about, like number one in customer service. We really try to build the things that people need and are looking for uh, to simplify their their life. So, yeah. Awesome. Well, I will have links to all that stuff in the show notes uh, so that everybody can 
act upon that at the end there. That's all good stuff. George, it's been a fantastic conversation. So yeah. thank you so much for, for joining today. And I hope we can do it again soon. Yeah, it'll be great. I love it. Thanks so much for inviting me. Thanks for hanging out with us today. This show is part of the Gable Media Podcast Network. You can see all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A.com. You can help support what I'm doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help get the word out, and of course, share it with your friends. I'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at trxl.co slash podcast where you can find every episode. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Just search for E. Troxel. Talk to you soon.